three, two, one. podcast family, Mackenzie here, operator of System and Soul, and I'm jumping in today to bring you a special episode. Now, if you have been around System and Soul for any amount of time, you will have heard us mention the name John Ritchie. And for good reason, John influences a lot of what we talk about and how we think as leaders. So today we're bringing you an episode that we recorded with John over a year ago, but it's worth listening to again or picking up if you've joined us later um, in this podcast history. The episode we're sharing is on the topic, why most leaders suck. I think we've all worked with a leader that sucked and there's a lot of ways that we can all improve leadership, right? So we think this episode will be relevant and it'll also give you a glimpse into the wisdom that we get from John on a weekly basis. All right, enjoy the episode. I am super excited to have my personal coach of 10, 11, 12 years on the show with us today, Mr. John Ritchie. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. I'm looking forward to being with you. So we were committed on this show to being pretty much half implementer, half entrepreneur, and we're, we're breaking our rules because at least at the moment, you are neither. But you are an executive coach for how many CEOs? 40. 40. That's a lot. That's wow. a heavy load. And um, give us your model real quick, because I think it, it, I don't know if it's 100% unique, but it, I, you know, being part of it, it seems to work well. I, I work with two groups of uh, CEOs. They organize into, into two uh, separate groups, really. I meet with them for a couple of hours every month in executive coaching context, and we meet all together uh, for an all-day meeting once a month. Hmm. For that meeting, I normally write a bunch of content, and uh, we'll work on their business issues in that context. In addition, I still work with a few people, a very small group of people, one-on-one. So tell us about the early days, John. How did you become an executive coach? You know, if you'd looked at my resume 20 years ago, it just looked like serial entrepreneur. I've been in different companies, different functions through the years, Mm -hmm. and I've most recently been uh, chief executive officer of a company for about four or five years, which we sold. I took a year off Mm -hmm. and decided, started looking around to what to do next, and this was it. When when I figured this out, it was like I am home. This is what I'm supposed to do. And and John, you you've got a model yep. for leadership that you use made up of three components. Talk about that for a second, because that's unique. Um, when we think about leadership, we think about competence, uh, which is uh, uh, table stakes. It is it is being able to have the intellectual horsepower, the experience, the education to do certain kinds of activities. The second building block is alliance building. It's your capacity to recruit other people uh, to help you and for you to uh, engage yourself with other people to help them. 
no executive can be successful without a robust capacity to build alliance with others. Mm. And the third one is wholeness. And wholeness leaves people shaking their heads sometimes, but wholeness is to show up with all of who you are and confront the demands of reality. And for most executives, they're going to struggle most in the domain of wholeness. Tell us what that looks like when you say people struggle with the idea of wholeness. Well, think about a guy that um, running his business, but he's adverse to conflict for some reason. And so he doesn't want to engage conflict with a key team member. That's almost always a wholeness issue because he's not bringing all of who he is to confront the demands of reality. When, when things turn tough in a business, and they always do, that's where you find uh, – that's another area where it gets exposed. It's your ability to stay calm to stay focused, to look at the facts and make decisions with the facts, not let your emotion, when your emotions take over, uh, emotion goes up, functioning goes right. down. Right. Yeah. You added a, a piece on there to confront the demands of reality. Why was that important? What is, what is the demands of reality? Reality is your friend because everything else is a fantasy. Hmm. I like that. And how often, I mean, I hate to say this, but how often do we live in some fantasy worlds, uh, living in a world we wish were there instead of the world that is? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let me give you a concrete example. There was an executive this week uh, who, when confronted by one of his subordinates for being rude and disrespectful to his team, said, Nobody has ever said that to me in 34 years of my career. And this man has simply not confronted the demands of reality. Mm -hmm. Well, I've known him for a long time, and it's always been the issue. Powerful. Yeah, you you told me early on, um, and, and it stuck with me, and I think I still peel back the layers of the onions on it, uh, but it was something to the effect of most business issues are a reflection of the heart of the leader. Did I get that right? And what does that mean? Well, uh, there's a couple of those. One of them is for most of these guys, their business, uh, certainly for an entrepreneur, the business wouldn't be there without them. They, they helped create it. They took the risk. They did all the hard work, but it can't grow past them. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they always find that its most serious, intractable problems have its roots in their heart. And so in order for the business to grow past that, the leader has to grow past those issues. Can you give us an example? Because we would so quickly go to, well, it's a competence issue or in the EOS world, we'd go to, you know, it's, uh, you know, we've GWC, right? Yeah, do they get it? Do they want it? Right. Do they have the capacity to right. do it? But this is a new idea. So, so help us understand this. An executive who began his business, uh, was functionally capable. He has done really well. He's outperformed all of his peers, but now he has to change the way the business works in order to move to another level. Mm-hmm. And his fears of not being technically competent bind him. 
uh, his prejudice against people that work exclusively in an office, in this case, keeping from being able to move to the next level because he can't keep doing what he's been doing if he's going to grow. Right. And his fears and anxieties have now become the problem in the company. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean that resonates, right? It's it's not uncommon, you know, for that founder owner to hold on too tight, you know, Ooh. and and it's those that are really self aware. Uh, to to your point, John, they they reach this point where, hey, this is all I can do. I mean, I've right. reached my level of 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 uh, you know unique ability or what have you, and some as we know, are able to open up and say, okay, I've got to bring in that next leader who can scale, you know, to whatever the next level is. And some don't. Some hold on too tight and they end up choking, you know, the life out of the company. This episode is brought to you by Titus Talent Strategies. Titus Talent Strategies exists to equip companies to make the best attraction, engagement, hiring, and development decisions meet their organization's people and performance objectives. We're here to help you get the right people in the right seats and be the best team members they can be, guaranteed. This is not your traditional recruiting model. Our approach has led to measurable results for our clients and lasting partnerships. Learn more at TitusTalent.com. You know, one of the things that EOS brought into the conversation in our peer group uh, was all of the visionary integrator conversations. And uh, it was almost this freeing moment of of a lot of people saying, oh, my goodness, I'm a visionary trying to be an integrator in my business. And people have adapted and grown in lots of different ways since then. Help us understand uh, what you see in the guys you're coaching that don't have integrators that have integrators and then have great integrators. Rocket fuel for a lot of people was, um, a book that, uh, it's my language. It's like, I've always had a third arm growing out of my back and I didn't know it. And when I read rocket fuel, I finally understood why my shirt doesn't fit right. It's it, it's not it, – I'm not broken. I'm not different. It's, it's who I am. It's who I've always been, and this now makes sense to me. Uh, the vast majority of entrepreneurs are uh, customer-oriented. They are um, culture-oriented, but the day-in, day-out, organize the team, the work of the integrator is – very difficult for them. They 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 want to be on to the next idea. Right. Now, how many times do I see these guys just uh, ADD? They're not ADD, but they've got a thousand ideas, and five of them are good, and they need help to get rid of the nine hundred and ninety five that are not good. And when an executive, it, it's a hard match. I, in practice, I, I've seen a lot of visionaries feel freedom, but I've also seen a lot of visionaries struggle to find a really good integrator for themselves. That guy that 
um, comes in and loves doing the integrator work and and loves the connection with the visionary. The people that have done that well, John, how, how did, as you watch their process or their decision making, are there keys to success that we could learn from? My observation is the best ones have grown into it instead of going out someplace and finding someone and imposing them on the market, mm-hmm. imposing them on the company. They've grown into that role. Maybe the guy was a uh, very capable in a particular role, and you kept giving him a little bit more responsibility, and pretty soon he was the integrator. Mm-hmm. But he did so with great credibility in the organization. Now, I have a lot of compassion for the integrator because I think I used to be one. I wouldn't have used that language. Mm-hmm. But in my longer, longer ago past, I operated as an integrator, happy to make the boss successful, understanding uh, what the boss brought to the table, but knowing I was going to need to say no a lot. What are the keys to saying no well? I think the first key is having a great relationship with the visionary. Mm -hmm. Um, All business problems are at their core relational. Uh, Companies don't deal with problems, but they rarely have problems they can't deal with. Their Their relationships keep them from dealing with them. So the same page meeting, uh, which I love, is the way in which the integrator and the visionary stay synced up on the same page. Most visionaries know that they have a lot of bad ideas. And the guy that's sifting and testing and listening and probing, uh, they can have a great relationship together. Yeah, I've seen that firsthand, and and I think that is key. It's um, almost uh, they're expecting you know twenty ideas today, and yep. uh, look, they're not all bad, and you've got great ideas, and keep them coming. This isn't the one, right? <laughs> it's a tough job because oh, yeah. they're the it's filter. They're they're the filter to the rest of the organization, up and down, <clears throat> up and down, and and when you have a visionary that you know has hundreds of ideas. The integrator's saying no a lot. I mean, <laughs> they're the bad guy, right? Um, and But that's the job. John, let me uh, go back to you playing devil's advocate on EOS. Where are the holes? What do, what do uh, you know, of the 40 companies that, that you work with, the ones that are uh, healthy and performing, what do they do that other companies don't? The biggest thing is they identify their problems and solve them. They don't pet them. They don't manage their tensions. When they have a problem, they try to they try to move into it and address it. The second thing, if they do this well, this is another challenge for people. Um, is in your quarterlies, you're picking rocks. Companies that operate EOS well pick the right rocks. Mm-hmm. The rocks are the thing are the concrete accomplishments that must occur to achieve our three-year picture or one-year plan. And it's so important that they pick exactly the right rocks, and they don't let this turn into a catch-all of, of administrivia. 
Mm. Yeah. So it's got to be the EOS properly operated causes organizations to focus on the vital few things and get them done. Mm John, I'm going to change direction here a little bit um, because I'm really interested in what you do with and how you help executives. Can you kind of tell our audience, why does an executive seek you out? Uh, The truth is how it usually happens is something – isn't working the way they want to in their business. They're experiencing some kind of frustration and they share that with a friend. And that friend says, you should talk to John. Virtually everybody that I work with came to me through a referral of either a current venture member or somebody in this community that knows me. (laughs) So that's their beginning point is a desire to change. People change in three ways, voluntary engagement, a pattern of failure, or the harsh discipline of reality. And higher performing people change through voluntary engagement. So they've discovered something that isn't working and they say, I need one of my favorite examples, a guy that ran EOS really well. When I first met him, He looked at me and he said, I think I can be remarkable, but I need help. And that's perfect, man. That is crack cocaine to a guy like that. (laughs) That's awesome. John, where can our listeners find you? They can't. Interesting. This is really. Bench did this. Actually, I I pointed at Bench for this. He said, you know, I need to have a website. He said, what? (laughs) Well, I guess I don't, do I? So I'm, you know, if somebody wants to talk to me, I'm John at Venturians.org. Okay. But that's really my public face is my email address. Wow. I have no website. I don't, I communicate a good bit with the men that I work with, and I don't have any market-facing communication. I'm being pressed to write a book, so maybe that'll be the way I introduce myself okay. outside of my All right. People. Yeah, I might have something to do with pressing this man to write a book because there, <laughs> there's so many nuggets. Even just when I think he's out of nuggets, he he pulls out his his iPad and his pen and and draws something that blows my mind. So uh, we definitely need this man sharing more with the world. But John, one of the things that is unique to you is the fact that you've become okay being so behind the curtain, like you're talking about. And as an entrepreneur, so much of us can't give it up. We, we keep going after that next thing, that next thing, that next thing. And you've, at this point, really devoted your life to a group of guys that maybe it's a, a gloryless uh, position from the outside. Um, it's, uh, you know, you, you wield no official authority or power, and yet you have great influence. <laughs> Tell us how that came to be and how at this season of life you are so in your sweet spot in that. After I sold uh, my last company, like I said, I took a year off and I I came along with this idea of business co- of coaching and a very smart friend of mine asked me this question. He said, John, can you be content with the success of others, or do you need to do it yourself? 
that's a meaningful question. And as I reflected on it, I think there was a time in my life where I could not have done this. I needed to run something. I needed to do something myself. Mm-hmm. But I have come to believe that authority, the power to tell people what to do, to come, to come when I say come and go when I say go, we should wield that for a season, and then we should lay mm. And I can get more done with influence than I ever could accomplish with authority. It is a more powerful but more blunt instrument. And when I can let my satisfaction come from the successes of the men that I work with, I find great joy in that. David Brooks is a columnist for the, I think, New York Times. Columnist might not be the right word. He has a new book. And in there he says that joy comes when our day-to-day activities are aligned with our deepest commitment. And I experience great joy in my professional life because of that. John, we like to ask all our guests as as we wrap up the podcast, uh, two questions. And the first question is, you obviously are living a very intentional and, and intense life. And what I'm curious about is, what's the most unproductive but life-giving thing you do? Oh, that is a really good question. One of my, I have two things that I do on a very regular basis. One is I sit with friends and purposeless activity. Okay. Uh, we call it eating pizza, even though we don't actually eat pizza. It is passing time in the company of people who know and love me well. Um, nice. it's not productive. Uh, it, it doesn't give, there's no objective or an outcome to it. Right. And the other thing I think is taking a walk in the woods. Uh. I, I am deeply connect to nature and to being outside and to beauty and wonder. Beauty and wonder, I guess, aren't particularly productive things, but they nourish the soul. Mm, that's so good. That, that Thoreau? <laughs> uh, John, the second question. That might be. <laughs> the second question, I want to ask you in a slightly different uh, way because of, of your unique perspective. But if you had a thousand entrepreneurs, uh, some integrators, some visionaries, and and you were giving a keynote, what would be the, the premise of your keynote? What What's your message to this community? My message to the community is, this is a great system, but don't be passive in relying on the system. Grab it and be on it as you execute it. Um, Vigor and intentionality in how you use it will release its power. Man, that was so good. It's always great to talk to John Ritchie. Hey, if you enjoyed this, you know we've got more for you. Keep listening to this podcast and check us out at systemandsoul.com.